episode 114 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, a discussion of performance and production. Is an all-around performer good enough for a title win? That, plus our big Watkins Glen preview, it is time to go racing again. But first, as always, this is episode 114 of Positive Regression. So, let's start with a quick look back on the career of Sterling Marlin, who recently drove the number 114 late model at Fairgrounds Speedway and elsewhere. David, Sterling Marlin, a Hall of Fame name, first of all, an unforgettable driver in NASCAR history, two-time Daytona 500 winner, which will cement his place in history. Overall, he won 10 races in his career, none of them until age 37, Half of his wins came in age 38 to 39 seasons, hint, hint. But David, it was a late age 45 title run in the midst of the Jeff Gordon, Tony Stewart era that really stands out for me when I think of Sterling Marlin. It was a title run cut short by injury of all things late in the season. So David, Sterling Marlin, where do you want to start? Uh, That injury, by the way, in in his calculation was a broke neck bone as he uh, as he uh said but uh I, I when i think of sterling you know we talk about age 39 and the surrounding ages acting as a cup series drivers statistical peak but it's important to know that that is relative to what came before and after a winning driver early in a career likely wins a lot more at his or her peak. And with Marlon specifically, his before and after was just a cut below winless, whereas his peak sort of tipped it over the edge. You mentioned the first win came at age 37. Uh, It was the 94 Daytona 500. And I don't know if you remember, it was treated as a big deal because that win broke what was at the time a 278 race winless record. And in hindsight, we look back on Marlon's career. Uh, He won 10 times, but any new fan would see that and not really think much of it without having lived it. Uh, Until he won that race in 1994, he built this reputation for being the driver who did not win. It wasn't Michael Waldrip crazy, but it was getting there. That was the prevailing narrative. And then pretty suddenly, that became a thing of the past. He padded the win total, uh, won some more plate races, not only at Daytona, but also Talladega. He won at Darlington in 95, and that was a track where he traditionally performed well. He had won two poles there in the years prior. But after 96, he didn't win again until 2001. And that's when he joined uh, Felix Sabatis in that early Chip Ganassi program. And as you mentioned, 2002, he won twice in what was a decent shot at the championship uh, until the the actual injury was broken vertebra in his neck after uh, race 29, a, a crash at Kansas. It was a brutal injury, obviously, but considering that he was ranked first in points after the 26th race, when we say that was his best shot at a title, yeah, because he he was in the thick of the contention. Um, And that iteration of that Ganassi number 40 Coors Light team was so good and so consistent that Jamie McMurray hopped into the car as a substitute in a second career Cup Series start at Charlotte and won the race in in a fairly dominant fashion. But... 
Marlin was not as productive as the car was dominant that year. The hmm. the one that stands out for you. He ranked ninth in peer with a 1.879 mark. And that's good. But relative to title contenders of the time, it was just okay. He never won a cup race again after that year, which was his age 45 season. So it sort of fits with what we know as the aging curve. It's just strange that for him, peak means winning and anything below peak means not winning. Uh, certainly an old school guy in many fashions. I mean, just look at him, listen to him, you know, all that stuff, you know, his coming of age or climbing the ladder of that era. Did he represent an era of paying dues and then getting finally getting in that good ride, you know, in your late thirties to be able to win or was it, uh, you know, bad luck uh, on the market because, you know, he, he was around for a long time. The eighties, obviously the early nineties was something amiss that didn't get him in a good ride or was this a, a paying your dues sort of era? Yeah, I don't. That's a good question because I don't know if it's any one thing in particular. I, I would argue that uh, had he been with a better team earlier in his career, I'm not sure that it would have helped his production rating. It's possible that he would have won earlier, but I think the difference would have been negligible. Um, from a narrative point of view, I think it'd be a slight difference, if any. But he had some decent rides. If you look kind of at his career before he got to his statistical peak, his time in the Billy Hagen number 94 Sunoco car, uh, granted, this was not the Hagen racing heyday, but it was a top 15 car when he was in it. It was borderline top 10 uh, in which he had, if I'm not mistaken, a, a fairly productive summer stretch. I want to say in 1990, a run of like five top six or seven finishes in a tight span. But if he was truly that transcendent driver, he would have carried that a little bit further. And the same goes for his shot driving for Junior Johnson and Associates in the original uh, Maxwell House number 22 car. He went winless across 1991 and 1992. And at the same time, it was 92, his stablemate uh, of course, was Bill Elliott. And he won five times that year, lost the championship to Alan Kowicki by 10 points. Uh, so I know that that's a comfortable narrative to say that he didn't get a good ride until a late point in his career. But if you actually break it down and understand what he had at his disposal, you, you sort of see the the perspective from a different angle. I think his rides jibed with where he actually was in his career on the on the aging curve. And by and large, we saw just about everything Marlin had to offer, which was a driver good enough to win 10 times. And which is not bad. And uh, certainly with the, the Daytona 500s. But David, of course, I'll also, I think I've mentioned the accent before, the, the son of Cuckoo Marlin, right? I mean, just uh, uh, old school as, as it can get and a lot of good roots there. I remember the Daytona incident in terms of him getting out of his car, trying to fix it during, under a caution. I mean, if you don't know about this incident, go YouTube it because he literally gets out of his car, tries to fix his fender at the Daytona 500 under a red flag. I mean, it's like, you know, this is the 2000s. TV cameras can see man uh and just the little anecdotes you hear about him from times past 
uh, you know, hearing him say Valley Joe is where Cal is where Jeff Gordon's from Valley Joe, California, oh. you know, little, little things like that. It's just make you laugh. Of course, still racing, uh, within the last few years, if not still racing, we know he does live with Parkinson's disease. So our best to him, but, uh, David, a memorable character in NASCAR history. Uh, without a doubt, uh, I'm with you. Just the names alone are uh, are terrific. And uh, you, you mentioned the championship run of 2002. I think my highlight for Sterling Marlin is the 94-95 run with Morgan McClure Motorsports. Two Daytona 500 wins. But it was part of that Morgan McClure legacy of plate track uh, I mean, dominance maybe, but competitiveness. I mean, it was sort of regardless who was in the four car, Ernie Irvine or Sterling Marlin, that four car was competitive on the plate tracks. Uh, just an independent team kind of doing it their way, but that was their strength. And at its core was Sterling Marlin. Episode 114 of Positive Regression, a look back at the career of Sterling Marlin. Let's get to it. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. David, let's talk about peer and producing and production from drivers and what it actually means to this era of different Types of racing, if you will. We know we discuss a lot. There is the 550 horsepower tracks. There are the 750 horsepower tracks. And when you break it down, some drivers produce better on some tracks than others. And that can have a big effect on championship winnings. And as we are only a few races away from the playoffs, it's time we look at that. So, uh, David, again, big picture, the, the best all around producer right now, peer production and equal equipment rating. The best producer right now is Kyle Larson overall, but just in terms of the 750 horsepower tracks, He's not even the most productive Hendrick Motorsports driver. That goes to Chase Elliott. Actually, Larson falls down to fourth in that category. What do you make of that when a driver like Kyle Larson is obviously excelling, but in the metric that you might look at when you look for championship contenders, he drops down a few spots. Okay. So the takeaway full stop is that Larson is a very good, quantifiably productive driver. Also, Chase Elliott happens to be more productive on the type of track that crowns the series champion. And both are factual. Um, and, and you can have this kind of argument or discussion about which matters more. And I suppose that lends itself to the kind of team that you want to build. But 
that's sort of it. I mean, we we have the two statements of facts. Uh, as we've entered this playoff era, and now more so in what is a split horsepower series, who wins the championship? That is no longer a reward for being the best all-around driver. And according to Pierre, Larson is better in 2021 than Elliott across the first 22 races at this mixture of racetracks. That might also be uh, the case for the full season once everything's said and done. But also, Elliott might end the season with a better peer on playoff tracks specifically, and that's just something different to evaluate. Uh, The schedule does have an influence on full season production rating. Uh, In the near future, road course racers might fare better for a full season than they previously did just because of the prevalence of the track type. I mean, we've had this conversation about AJ Allmendinger that, yeah, when he was ousted by JTG Doherty, it's because he wasn't producing across all tracks on a consistent basis, but there's more of a bridge to what he does better now than there was when he was last in the cup series. Ergo, he makes more sense as a cup series driver. I'm not sure if teams are actually going to think that way. It'll be interesting to see what, happens. But I would say the schedule has an equal influence on the title winner, but in a different, more pronounced way because of the knockout rounds and the sample size and the split in the rules package. So I think it's just, it's something that lends itself to more and more conversation. Yeah. And that's, these are great questions to ask. And that's half the reason we do this podcast, right? Because just take those two examples you just mentioned, the drivers. Right now, for a playoff, and listeners, you can answer this question on your own. For for a playoff championship run right now, knowing what you know about production at the 750 tracks versus overall, would you rather have Chase Elliott or would you bank on Kyle Larson to be your eventual champion? Uh, you know, which one do you give more weight to? And, and David, looking forward, you know, should teams hire the most productive driver or the driver best suited to win the championship again? What we're trying to instill here is that they may not be the same person, right? They may not be the same driver. Uh, it's a hard question to answer. Would you rather have the most productive driver or the driver best suited to win the title? Be, I think it's a hard answer, David, only because you know how much of it is team, how much of it is team preparation, if you will. Uh, I look back to last year and the Penske drivers, right? I mean, Harvick, Hamlin, class of the field. Then you had the Penske cars who seemed to excel at the 750 horsepower tracks, uh, driver included, drivers included. So in that case, I'd be like, no, give me the Penske scenario because I want the fastest car in Phoenix, which is what Penske had. I mean, is that too simple of my, my thoughts to say, yeah, let's go for the title? What do you think? I mean, I think you're right. It depends on the the team. I think it also depends on the drivers that are available. Arguably, we just saw this with Penske choosing Austin Sendrick, uh, a, a road course threat across any series over Matt DiBenedetto, whose specialty might be 550 tracks. You know, you can, you can argue that you, you can say that maybe this was what pushed Christopher Bell past Eric Jones in last year's uh, uh, Joe Gibbs argument. I don't know. I think there's a lot to consider. Uh, I think all teams are probably already doing this, especially if there are options. They're looking at the schedule and the new car and understanding what's relevant and making decisions based on that. So it 
it's it's probably already happened and, and might happen a little bit more in the future. But I think the, the question we should be asking is, should it be happening at all? Because hmm. that's another discussion altogether. And I'm on the side of just sign the most talented driver that you think you can afford. Uh, embrace the faults of that driver, the strengths of that driver, but recognize there might be weaknesses, but attack those weaknesses. Because look at what working with Michael Self has done for Christopher Bell on road courses. Look what working with Scott Speed has done for Tyler Reddick. Uh, both of those uh, drivers, Bell and Reddick, are dirt open wheel guys. They, they don't have a, a road course background, but now they're looking pretty sporty in the Cup Series. Uh, look what working with Josh Wise has done for Alex Bowman in general. If there is a modicum of talent that you see, that you believe in, uh, you're an owner, you like what you see, just go get the driver and then work on whatever you need to work on. Because uh, frankly, and I think it was Martin Truex who talked about this uh, at the Cup Series level, something is changing every offseason, whether it's rules or the schedule or the championship format or he- hello, the car mm-hmm. <laughs> coming next year. Change is a constant and the ability to adapt to that change is an ability that is now required to be a NASCAR Cup Series driver. And in that sense, just go get that ball of talent that is out there and mold them for whatever you need them to do right now because it's likely that whatever's going on right now couldn't just change later. And we see some of the best drivers are the most adaptable ones and have been throughout the years. I think I think that's a good sense. And there you mentioned Christopher Bell. He's one of the drivers I wanted to talk about here, because uh, when, when we look at, on your data, motorsports analytics, uh, we, drivers with interesting splits. And by that, I mean, drivers who have different levels of production on the different types of racing, the 550 versus the 750 package. The, we'll, t- we'll start with Kevin Harvick. I, I, I'll explain it with the numbers. David, Kevin Harvick's peer production on the 550 tracks this year, more than a 4.0, which is sky high, which is super good. I know he doesn't have the victories, but what that tells us is he's producing greatly on the 550 tracks. Compare that to what he's doing on 750 horsepower tracks. It goes all the way down to a more pedestrian 1.6. That's a that's a huge difference, 4.0 to 1.6. How do you look at that difference, 550 versus the 750? What does that tell you when you look at it? Yeah, so the, the, the 550 uh, rating ranks third overall. It's in line with what he did last season. The speed's not there. That's why he's not winning the races. But He's still got the chops on the bigger tracks. He's pretty much the same guy that he was last year. But the move to 750, and specifically road courses this season, that's hit him pretty hard. Um, His peer there, you mentioned it's above a 1.6. It's still fine. It's ranked 11th in the series, but that is the difference in and of itself. Uh, And the schedule offering more of the types of races in which he's less productive makes him less productive on the whole. And certainly that would alter the narrative if the schedule had been like this five years ago, six years ago. We probably would not be talking about him as this elite guy 
very much in the winter of his career. He'd still have all the same qualities. He'd still be the driver capable of going out on big tracks and doing what he does. But if those big tracks aren't on the schedule, then we don't see that. His impact would be diminished. It does seem for him anyway that the sport is moving in a direction right now that does not favor him as much as it previously did. And that's certainly the case right now this season. That's why you're seeing uh, a reduced peer compared certainly to what we saw in an eight win season last year. But if you look on the tracks where Kevin Harvick is, Kevin Harvick, he's very much the same guy he's been the last few seasons. That's why I'm so interested to find out what they do at Michigan. Uh, Just knowing that, you know, just being on that edge, I don't really fear them missing the playoffs, but you never know. And you have to imagine how much they are preparing for that One Michigan race that they have left uh, should be good. David Martin Truex Jr., the opposite issue, if you will, to Kevin Harvick. Martin Truex Jr., 550 pier, 0.95. That's below one, yes. Compare that to his 750 horsepower tracks. His pier is 3.5. Skyrocketing production. Outstanding production when it comes to those 750 horsepower tracks those you know the the, sort of the bread and butter or the kind of a pathway to the championship uh the the opposite of kevin harvick what do you read into that if anything yeah he ranks fifth on 750 ranks 18th in pier on 550 it's funny he if he's the one touting the ability to be adaptable he's done that in a variety of ways he used to be the intermediate track guy the juggernaut when he was with furniture row uh, now he's the short track <laughs> and 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 really playoff short track specialist. I mean, it, it, it's it's a it's a very small specialty. He used to be the driver uh, thriving in clean races without late restarts. And now it's the opposite. If you look into those peer splits. So really amazing in the way that he continues to reinvent himself year after year. And he's in his 40s. But more so than Harvick, he's sort of primed for what the Cup Series is right now and whatever the next era is going to be. And to his peer, for the whole season, it's a 2.364. That is well below what was his preseason projection. But it's a number that should rise over the course of the playoffs just because that 10 race slate contains races that clearly suit the driver uh well it suits what he is at this very moment and it contains Sorry. places that he's won at earlier this season so those are two veterans with kind of opposite issues if you will kevin harvick martin truex now let's talk about christopher bell you mentioned him before david the splits on him this is weird 550 tracks he has a 0.4 peer uh, maybe you've been able to deduce 0.4, not very good. And then, but you swing over to the 750 tracks and it jumps up to 2.5, 2.5 pier, 750 tracks. His first year, you know, with, uh, Adam Stevens and the 20 car, uh, pretty decent, you know what I mean? Not, not one of the top drivers, if you will, not yet, but for a young driver who's got the victory, uh, his 750 performance is what stands out to me. It's interesting, isn't it? It's strange in that this is different than what we saw from him last year when his peer splits skewed towards the 550 tracks. I think he said as much uh, in some availabilities this year. But I would argue what we're seeing from him this year 
makes a little more sense given the context. We know about his improvement on road courses. We spoke with Michael Self on this podcast a few weeks back. Uh, and then even some of the short tracks, his best efforts on 750 uh, ovals this season came at New Hampshire, which is a track that just works well for him historically. He's undefeated there in the Xfinity series. He had top 10 finishes at Phoenix, Richmond, Martinsville, uh, Nashville too. And you know, I I don't think he'd be anywhere near an odds-on favorite for this, but he's sort of forming into a sleeper pick as a title contender. What? Maybe not <laughs> maybe not one who's done cooking, right? Because he'll need a lot of things beyond his control to break his way in the playoffs in order for him to advance. But he's in the oven and he's cooking <laughs> and, and, and you can smell it. Uh, ba- basically Christopher Bell smells. That's the crux of this entire episode. <laughs> but no, I, I think, I think there's an understanding here of how it might all work for him going forward. At the very least in the short term, as long as the schedule stays the same, the rules package kind of stays where it's at. We don't know what that's going to look like really going forward, but I think we have a pretty good idea and we have a good idea of the driver bell can be for JGR as NASCAR moves into this uh, new era. So I think it's a, a sign of real optimism if you're a Chris Bell fan. But when you see the point four on the 550 tracks, right, th- that peer, in terms of being more well-rounded, uh, I-, I know you can kind of excel your way on the 750 tracks to to higher ground and, and a lot of success, but you got to bring it up a little bit, right, on the 550 stuff, right? Th- th- there's room for improvement. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I said, he's still cooking, right? The, the, in- the inside's a bit raw. And, and, and But we saw good outings from him last year on the 550 tracks when he was driving for LFR. Um, this year, I'm not entirely certain what the disconnect is on that. Uh, JGR is a whole Kyle Bush is, is really their, their 550 guy. He's Toyota's 550 guy. Bell certainly is that, but we've seen good recent relevant performances from him and we understand what the potential ceiling could be. We just haven't seen it. And the flip side of that is he has been impressive on road courses and 750 ovals this season. And that's something to hang your hat on as they go into the playoffs. So we covered the spectrum there from, you know, good on the 550, good on the 750, uh, a little bit in between the top 750 producer right now, Joey Logano. Now, what does that tell us? We know he has his faults, but if you're looking at him as championship contender, the 750 stuff that, that shines right now. How do you complete that? What does he need to do if we're really going to consider him for a title in Phoenix? I mean, he kind of needs to perform on the tracks that he's good at. And it's it's a good question. I wrote about this last week for NBC Sports, talking about the Team Penske plan and that pivot to focusing specifically on 750 horsepower tracks. At the center of that plan is Joey Logano. Uh, Maybe less so... Uh, Brad Keselowski and Ryan Blaney, because they can hedge and do good things on 550 tracks, Logano hasn't really shown that this season at the very least. Uh, The passing numbers are just outright bad. It's a little bit different of a story on 750. And if you're going to execute this kind of plan, then maybe Logano is the perfect guinea pig to, to place because this might actually be his most prudent path to a championship is is doing exactly what 
the Penske at large is doing and his crew chief, Paul Wolf specifically are doing, but also it's a path that this kind of focus, uh, on, on these tracks that matter in the playoffs, looking at this 10 race playoff slate, uh, over half of the races are at 750 tracks, five are at 750 ovals where it reduces where they they struggle not only logano and passing at 550 but paul wolf and strategy on 550 it matters less so it, it's almost it kind of just maps out the the way the schedule it is it, it breaks in his favor he's fortunate in that regard but also it took some foresight from penske as an organization to understand the driver's strengths and build around that as opposed to trying to build up a weakness that might not have mattered in, in hindsight, looking at how strong Hendrick Motorsports was as a whole. I know we only have last year as the sample size, really in terms of the 550-750 split, but I'm just so intrigued how that plays out again this year. Is last year the anomaly, right? Or do we see a repeat where uh, you know kind of the focus on these 750 tracks really does make out and, and shape the 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 championship winner. Uh, I look forward to it. All right, David, for the first time in two weeks, we can finally say we are previewing an upcoming race. It's good to say we are back with our race preview. Of course, Watkins Glen triple header up there for NASCAR, including the cup series, of course, on Sunday. And David, we'll start right at the top. Chase Elliott, the two time defending winner, obviously the early betting favorite to win this weekend. Uh, what has been his recipe for success at Watkins Glen? We know he's a good race car driver, but at the Glen specifically, where do you see the strengths? What pops out? Uh, firstly, the obvious, he had the fastest car in both of those races. Uh, but secondly, he had a high adjusted pass differential uh, in both and a high surplus value uh, to boot. And while... That seems obvious. It all seems straightforward. Uh, it, it isn't. We've seen races this year and, and in prior years where the race winner scores a negative surplus, uh, and we've seen winners not have the fastest car. So this all seems pretty straightforward, simple, right? Uh, I'm sure certainly it's uh, not as easy to execute. But uh, what does this mean? I believe it symbolizes something. It, it symbolizes a racetrack where the driver holds a lot of influence, uh, namely a good driver and a good road course racer is efficient with brake use and that lends to better speed. A good road course racer can seemingly pass at will. We saw that with Elliott. We've seen that uh, lately for Martin Truex too. We saw that at Watkins Glen in years past. The prior driver of a number nine car, Marcus Ambrose, followed the same path, fastest car, high passing surplus and Ambrose didn't have a Hendrick car at his hmm. disposal. He drove for RPM, but he willed that car to the speed that it recorded. And on top of that, he was fairly relentless behind the wheel at this track, which was visible in his underlying numbers. So to me, Watkins Glen, uh, it strikes me as a driver's track. History is on its side for that kind of assessment, at least recently. And right now, Chase Elliott is the best driver, the most productive driver, certainly at Watkins Glen. So if you're going to beat him, though, right? I mean, you have to have the speed. <laughs> that, that, that part is obvious. I mean, I, I think we can say, uh, given what you've said the last few years and at other points uh, at Watkins Glen. So how do you do it? Can anyone effectively do it? We mentioned already before, earlier in the episode, 
the best 750 producer, this will be a 750 track, obviously, that's Logano. He has top 10 speed on road courses. Uh, Truex is the top road course passer uh, with top 10 speed at road courses. Uh, some potential there. Who do you look at? Do you, Is it a strategy thing? Who can beat Chase Elliott, David? Well, so you said you had to have the speed, but I need to point out, you, you probably need to have much better speed because <laughs> if you try going head to head with Chase Elliott and attempt to do the same things that he's doing, work the same strategy. I think that's actually a losing proposition. It isn't realistic to think that you can beat Elliott straight up playing this game. And if you want to win, you need to try playing another game. And Maybe some of the drivers you just mentioned are, are exceptions. Maybe, maybe Truex is the exception, and, and Logano, uh, Christopher Bell will have a car, Kyle Larson will have a car, but I don't know if I care for their chances as much as I view a beneficiary of an odd strategy as having a better shot of winning. And, and some of the drivers that kind of fall into this mix are Ross Chastain, the RCR guys, uh, your boy, Chase Briscoe, some of these bubble teams in need of a win to make the playoffs, I think that they will try something as a long shot play to win this race. And as much as it's indeed a long shot to happen in general, I feel like that is more likely to work than just trying to outdrive Chase Elliott. Because I don't I don't think anyone can do that uh, right now or based on what we've seen recently and, and, and do that this weekend for the entirety of a race. But can some team with an inventive strategy outdrive Elliott for four laps, five laps? Maybe, you know, take advantage of clean air and, and hit your marks. Maybe that can happen. So to me, this will be a lot like how teams – approached Kyle Larson and combated Kyle Larson in that first Pocono race. If you recall, Ben Bishore deliberately went off sequence with Kyle Busch uh, compared to Kyle Larson. That's how much respect Larson was given in that race. And Pocono is a track that is influenced by pit strategy. Well, same goes here with Watkins Glen. And Elliott is that driver for which other teams are going to have to game plan. So, given all that, would you pick against him, if you will, uh, our win picks, David? We do this, uh, you know, it's been a few weeks, but our win picks. Are we picking anyone other than Chase Elliott to win the race? I'll let you hold for a second. I'm just saying, if it were me, betting real money, of course not. No, I would not bet against Chase Elliott. Now, would it surprise me if Kyle Busch went out and won? Of course not. Truex, of course not. Logano, we've seen it before. At Watkins Glen. It wouldn't surprise me if they won, but if I was betting real cash money, I would not bet against Chase Elliott. So, therefore, I have to pick Chase Elliott. I'm sorry to be boring. Yeah, I'm not picking against him either. Uh, he, he's won the last two races with different rules packages, mind you. And if anything, this particular 750 package uh, has uh, the low downforce, it, it, it accentuates driver input. And I feel that works more in his favor. Uh, it will be fun to see the differing strategies around him and behind him. But yeah, uh, just uh, looking at what he's able to do on paper, he's the betting favorite. There's a good reason for that. 
Amen to that. All right. So we both agree there. Uh, and that's tough. So, but if someone does beat him, it will be a hell of a story. So that'll be cool. Now we always go to our contrarian contenders, either someone that'll kind of punch above their weight class or maybe surprise. Uh, who are you looking at, David, this week for Watkins Glen? A something, I don't know if you can call it a wild card, but maybe you bring in some other names you wouldn't necessarily think of on the big ovals. Uh, okay. So I'll say Ross Chastain. Uh, oh. He's got. Four races uh, before the regular season ends uh, to win and and book a ticket for the playoffs. And I mean, weirdly, I feel better about his chances of winning any of the road course races and Michigan as opposed to Daytona. And I know that that's backwards to what the, the common perception probably is across these next four races, but this team has made strides and he's lived up to this billing on uh, road courses this season as a, as a good surplus passer. He ranks third in surplus passing value on road courses, trailing only Martin Truex, as you said, and Ryan Priest, who's also a fun shout, but I've learned to not trust JTG Doherty with these picks. Therefore, <laughs> Chastain by default. Uh, but also, he's the linchpin of this 42 team that is rounding into form uh, with Crucci Phil Surgeon just in time to be shut down completely before 2022. Uh, so I'm anxious to see what they're able to do. Yes, and kudos to you, by the way. I hope you follow all of David's work. But he did write a great write-up of uh, explaining Ross's strengths and why a team should, a smart team may look at him and, and how that could uh, you know, really define his future. And Trackhouse did just that, just as you predicted, David. So kudos to you and kudos to Ross Chastain for securing a ride for the next few years. That is your contrarian contender. David, I, I was going to go with Ross and or the other one in my mind was Tyler Reddick. They're right there in terms of road course, median speed this year. We've seen Tyler Reddick have good speed. I think it was a, a Coda. Uh, we've seen it you know, manifest itself throughout some of the other ones. Uh, he is in the heat of a playoff battle right now. And uh, I, I think it's time for him to separate himself. And I, I think Tyler Reddick, uh, that he just becomes my pick. Again, you know, not, not to contend for the win, but to punch above his weight class and put on a performance that is necessary when you are trying to uh, secure your playoff spot, specifically against a teammate whose strength, Austin Dillon's, is not road course racing. I, I think uh, Tyler Reddick can show his improvement and, uh, and show it again this weekend at Watkins Glen. What do you think? Most points earned in the Road America race, Tyler Reddick. So uh, another one or ideally two of those before the regular season ends would uh, do wonders for his playoff chances. There you go. Think about those two picks, Ross Chastain and Tyler Reddick for your fantasy NASCAR fantasy lineups. David, don't forget we are available on all major podcast platforms, no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or review. That does help in spreading the word about this podcast. We, of course, notice, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we would love to hear them. Reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod, uh, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D, and sometimes we make an entire episode of your questions because they are so good. David, you are always working hard i don't think you took one break in the two week uh, off week so what are you working on this weekend uh this week i'm gonna tout volume two of the motorsports analytics prospect bible which is on sale now to the general public it is 17 pages of exclusive analysis i'm not gonna post this anywhere else uh and artwork 
on five of NASCAR's top prospects, including cover star Austin Sendrick. Uh, so if you're interested, go to motorsportsanalytics.net backslash ebooks right now to get your copy and, uh, and all of those copies usable on all devices. Very cool. A lot of cool work, cool illustrations. I know that's not what you're there for, but the illustrations are definitely worth it. So kudos to uh, to David and the artists and everybody getting that work done over there. It's uh, it's very informative and, and good stuff to read there. Uh, David, I'm happy to say NASCAR Fantasy Live is back this week. So make sure you check and watch that on Fridays on NASCAR.com. Myself and Amy Long helping you out with fantasy strategy, especially this late in the regular season. Uh, also, after you listen to this podcast on Thursday, morning make sure you watch uh check out my twitter feed at alan cavana and check out what i do for speed sport the quick hit segment sets up your weekend of racing a lot of times beyond nascar there's a lot of cool stuff going on in the racing world every weekend and kind of sets the table for you and make sure you are a well-rounded race fan thank you for checking that out and uh that's about it just keep it keep up on my social channels and thank you as always for listening to positive regression it has been another cool episode episode 114 for David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. We'll see you next week. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. 